Good morning, Bethel. This morning, we are uh, really looking forward to journeying into, in fact, actually picking up on a little bit of a tradition that we have begun to embrace the last number of years. Going back six, actually, this is our seventh year doing this, where we have been journeying through the book of Psalms, the the Psalms of summer. And for the last six summers, uh, and now this is the seventh, we've been learning about how to pray and to worship and to commune with God through this amazing book that is a favorite of so many of ours. Each week we have, have taken a single Psalm and really dug into it. And so over these last six years, we've gone through from Psalm uh, one all the way to 59, Lord willing this year, we're going to dive into Psalm 60 through 69. And the book of Psalms is, is one of the, the most favorite books in the Bible for so many of us. One of the most favorite portions of God's word for so many. As, as with all of the scriptures, it is totally inspired by God. All of it is from the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. But, but the book of Psalms stands out as a little bit unique compared to the rest of the Bible in this. All of the Bible is God's word to us, but it's God kind of speaking and directing and leading us. The book of Psalms is sort of this like flip to that. See, see what it is, is it's, it's God speaking, but actually giving us words to speak back to him. Us words to, to pray and, and words to sing in worship to God. Uh, it, it's, it's God's word given to us to pray and converse with him. And in this book, we have, have God writing words that are gifted to us to use in, in talking, praying, worshiping in all of life, in all that life brings, in the, the highs and the joys, the lows and the, the, the challenges, the sorrows and the celebrations and everything in between. And, and what we're going to find here each week this summer is, is really two things that come out of each psalm. First, what we're going to do is we're, we're going we're to see the psalm and, and, and read and, and reflect on and actually use the psalm as a prayer in and of itself, as words for us to pray to God. And, and then we're also, secondly, going to reflect on these words to learn about God from them, to learn about ourselves from them, to really gain some incredible insights from the Lord as we, as we reflect and dissect each of these psalms. And so today, today we find ourselves starting out our journey again in the book of Psalms in Psalm 60. Grab your Bible out from your home there and turn with me to Psalm 60. I've titled today's message this, How to Pray as You Step Into the Fray. How to Pray as You Step Into the Fray. If I could, if I could see and reach right in through the screen right now and see in your home, I wonder if I could do a little, you know, like survey show of hands. From your home right now as you're sitting there, uh, show of hands, how many have heard or used one of these little phrases or these idioms before? You know, the, the straw that broke the camel's back or, or collapsed like a, a house of cards or, or the cherry on top of the Sunday. How, how many have used that? I'm sure all of us have heard and used one of those phrases before, right? 
We use these phrases to describe these, these moments, these times, these seasons, these experiences in life where it just feels like, you know, like one thing after another, after another, after another is piling on until finally it just feels like if you add one more obstacle, if you add one more struggle, if you add one more source of opposition, one more issue, one more challenge, it's just going to, I'm going to snap underneath the weight of it. I cannot take one more thing. I, I will not survive. I will collapse like a house of cards. It'll be the thing that just tops it all off. Let me ask you today. When you find yourself in the midst of one of those moments or one of those seasons, how do you pray? How do you pray when it feels like one thing after another after another is just piling on and then there's, then there's that final thing that is about to collapse and you're, you're about to collapse underneath it? How do you talk to God? How do you worship? How do you come and approach the Almighty in the midst of that? How do you not just run for the hills? How do you not just curl up in the corner and, and, and try and hide? But how do you actually step into, by faith, the fray and pray. That is what Psalm 60 today is all about. The psalm begins with an introduction, a title that is actually right there in the original language and from the inspired text, a title that gives us a bit of the, the setting to what we're seeing here. It says, for the director of music, meaning it's, it's written for the worship leader of the day, for the ancient mate of God's people here to the tune of the lily of the covenant. It's not a, a huge surprise that we don't know exactly what this tune is, but I would guess if we were back in the day with ancient Israelites, this is like on their Spotify playlist. The lily of the covenant tune, it's a mictum of David. That's probably means it's a kind of poem. A mictum was probably a kind of poem here, and it's David. David, the, the ancient king of Israel, the well-known king, David and Goliath, that, that David. And it says, for teaching, when he fought Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. How do we pray as we step into the fray? See, David and his men here at this moment where we, we enter into this text today have heard, they've gotten word somehow of these two massive armies that are coming towards them, Aram Zaharium and Aram Zobah. That's probably the ancient Mesopotamians and armies from ancient Syria. It's not entirely clear from this text exactly where, if we were to flip over and try and journey through the life of David and, you know, in, in the book of Samuel, where this is, but, but probably, best guess, is it's in the midst of where you would read 1 Samuel chapter 8, this scene that's going on. Even though we don't know exactly, he, here's the scene, okay? Here, here's what we do know, here's what we understand from God's word. There is this giant army, two giant armies coming towards David. I, I don't know if they could hear the hoofs of the horses if you put your ear to the ground. I don't know if they could see the cloud of dust moving towards them slowly. I don't know if a, a young lookout person came running in and said, they're coming, they're coming, look out, the armies are coming. An army is coming. Two armies are coming at exactly 
the worst time. And I, there's never a good time for an army to come, right? But it's the, the worst time. It's the cherry on top. It's the straw that's about to break the camel's back. It's the final card that's going to bring the whole house collapsing down. Look at verse 1. You have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry. Now restore us. You have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures, for it is quaking. You have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. But for those who fear you, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. Selah. On top of the sounds of the, the thuds of the hooves coming towards them, on top of the angst as the cloud of dust might be descending upon them, the cries of the lookout man saying, they're coming, they're coming. A whole ton of other stuff has been going on. A whole whack of other disasters has been striking the people. A whole gigantic pile of other obstacles and opposition. And what we learn here, here's the first lesson that comes out of this psalm as we seek to learn how to pray as we step into the fray. It's this, pour out your angst, but come and rest under the truth. Pour out your angst, but come and rest under the truth. Verse one, it says, you have rejected us, O God, and burst forth upon us. You have been angry, restore us. The psalmist doesn't outright name it here. Most sources seem to think that they've just gone through a battle and lost pretty significantly, pretty significant defeat. That's one of the big reasons why it's so hard exactly to place where this was because we can't figure out exactly the happenings that are going on here for David in this moment. But, but the point is there, there's been one thing after another after another that's left him feeling like, God, you've abandoned us. You've turned your back upon us. You have, you have burst out upon us. God, why? Why are you doing this to us? Are you angry with us? He uses his poetic language that just sort of oozes out the angst here. He says, verse two, you have shaken the land and torn it open, mend its fractures for it is quaking. It's like, there's probably not an actual, but it's like in the poetic language, there are earthquakes going on everywhere. Everything is shaken. Everything is in turmoil. Everything is being ripped open and flipped up and bridges collapsing and roads being ripped apart. Everything everywhere is shaking. Verse three, you have shown your people desperate times. You have given us wine that makes us stagger. It's so bad, so desperate, so hard that, that it's like we don't know up from down. We don't know left from right. We're like, we're like drunks falling all over and we don't even know which way to go. You've poured out your judgment upon us, this glass of wine that has led us to just stagger. We see here everything is hitting the fan. It's all coming crashing down. It feels like everywhere they look, it is all disaster. On top of disaster, on top of another disaster. One commentator said, present circumstances make it seem as if God has abandoned them. Have you ever had this happen 
to you. Have you ever had one of those days, one of those weeks, one of those seasons where it just feels like it's one thing on top of another, on top of another? When you get that news that your boss is just needing to cut back the hours, and as you're driving home from work, your tire on your car blows. You stop on the side of the road and call the tow truck and they give you a hundreds and hundreds of dollar bill to take it into the shop. When you finally get home, you find out that your, your children or your grandchildren are, are having these major struggles at school. And then your wife is so sick that you need to take her into the ER that night. It just feels like one thing after another, after another, after another. And how are we possibly ever going to get through this? There's no way you could add one more thing to this. I will collapse underneath. Ever been there? Do you find yourself there even right now? Do you have a friend that is close to you that is in that moment right here and now. God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Why have you abandoned us? Why have you ripped up the whole world and the earth is quaking and everything feels like it's just crazy inside? What are you doing, God? Why have you deserted us, God? And then throw on top of all of that for David and his men here, now (laughs) two gigantic enemies from Mesopotamia and Syria are coming to descend upon them to attack, to destroy them. This is where this prayer comes from. In that moment with everything else already a disaster, and now on top of that, disaster upon disaster, how do you pray when you need to step into this? This is what Psalm 60 is seeking to help us with. And and I love this very first lesson here that we see. I love this invitation that we are given as God inspires these words to be prayed here. Here we are urged, pour out your angst. Do, do, Do you see this here? God inspired these first three verses here, giving you and me, words to pray when we find ourselves, of course, maybe not attacked by by Syrians and Mesopotamians and and having all of these other things going wrong after we just lost a battle, but but who knows what it might be in our lives. Is it health issues, finance issues, kids issues, grandkids issues, job issues, home issues, whatever it is that's going on, one thing on top of another. And then how do you pray in the midst of this? Here's what you need to know. God invites us to pour out our angst. To pour out our angst. You don't need to sugarcoat it. You don't need to pretend and be all rosy and polite to God. Sometimes there is such heavy stuff going on that we need words like these first three verses to just say, God, where are you? Have you turned your back upon me? Have you abandoned me? What is going on, God? That makes me feel like you've rejected me. And run away the other direction. That everything is a complete disaster. Now, is that accurate? We'll come to that in a minute. But what we see here, first of all, is God giving us words to articulate these experiences inside of us when we walk through these seasons. Pour out 
your angst. Lay it all down here. You don't need to hold it back. You don't need to sugarcoat it. It's invited to bring it before the Lord as we pray. Pour out your angst, but come and rest under the truth. Look at what verse 4 says. But for those who fear you, that's the Lord, you have raised a banner to be unfurled against the bow. It, it, It feels like a total mess. I know. I know it feels like a total mess, dear brothers and sisters. And and we can see, though, in the midst of this, this invitation to us here that God says, you know, come over here and I want to give you rest under my banner. Come here. I know it might feel like God has turned his back upon us. I know it might feel like in this moment God has abandoned you. But for those who fear God, those who have reverence and awe are like, wow, God, I lay my life down before you. For those who have done that and who have given their hearts to Jesus Christ, for these people, God raises a banner to be unfurled against the bow. That's a bit of a weird line, right? That's a bit of a a weird phrasing here for us. I I don't know the last time you heard someone say, I'm going to unfurl my banner over you. You probably haven't heard that anytime recently. Here's the picture though, okay? I was thinking about this just a couple weeks ago. One of my daughters was at the, uh, the big track meet for the elementary schools at SDCI. She got to the high school and there was all the schools from all around, right? So there was, you know, there was North Meadows and there was J.S. Buchanan and there was Mary Wright and there was all these different, and there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids and parents there to watch at this big track meet. And, and each of the schools up on the hill at the field, I don't know if you can picture it at the soccer fields there at the high school, along the top of the hill, each of the schools had a tent, or, or a couple tents, and on the tent was this like banner with their school's insignia. And, and it was there for the students because in, in case you, you were confused by where are all of the different people and where, where's your school and where's the team you're supposed to be on, or you get overwhelmed or you get disoriented or you're often chatting with a friend and you're trying to figure, have I missed my big race or whatever, then you can look at all the tents and you see the one that says, this is my team. This is my school. And if you're, if you're wondering or you're disoriented or you're lost or you're, you're worried, you can run back to your tent and see your banner over there. And it's your place of safety. It's your place of orientation. It's your spot to run back to. That's the picture that is here. For those who fear the Lord, God puts up a banner over them. He unrolls a banner that says, you are mine. This is your safe place. You are on my team. You are a part of my family. And, and, and literally, it says it's, an, it's, it's a, a banner unfurled to, to block you from the bow. Literally, that means it's right in your face. So that what you look at is the banner of God's identity over you rather than the dust of the marching hooves or the bow of the enemy that is coming towards you. So, so yes, we are invited to pour out our angst, but come and rest under the truth of who we are because of Jesus Christ. Here's the second thing we learn coming out of this text in the next sort of stanza of this psalm. 
from verses five to eight. Beloved, the great and holy God welcomes our lowly pleas. As we think about, as we wrestle with, how do we pray as we step into the fray? What we see here is this amazing truth. Beloved, the great and holy God welcomes our lowly pleas. Verse five, it says this, save us and help us with your right hand. God has spoken from his sanctuary. In triumph, I will parcel out Shechem and measure off the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah, my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom, I toss my sandal over Philistia. I shout in triumph. Beloved, the great and holy God welcomes our lowly pleas. For some reason here, and I I frankly, I don't know why, but the NIV translates this first verse, verse five, differently than almost every other translation. And it actually skips over one of the words that I think is a key word here in this verse in the original language. It just leaves it out. It's the word for beloved. Almost every other English translation you read will capture that. For some reason, I don't know why the NIV skips it over here. This verse verse literally says, save us your beloved and help us with your right hand. Or save your beloved ones and help us with your right hand. Those who, as verse four says, those who fear the Lord are God's treasured, beloved children. Especially loved ones. And we see here this amazing contrast in this plea from us this plea that God gives to us. We as people in the midst of so much turmoil and stress and anxiety are pleading out, please save us, contrasted we're going to see here with the almighty holy God who rules and reigns over everything. Everything is wrong and a disaster from our vantage point, but oh, God is completely in control. God is the one who speaks from his sanctuary in verse 6. His super holy, set apart, incredibly amazing throne in heaven. And he basically says, here's a paraphrase, we'll unpack it, but like, I own everything. God's like, I own everything. I I know everything seems like a disaster for you, but you are talking to the one and I'm inviting you to bring your pleas to me. And I own everything. Verse six finishes off, in triumph I parcel out Shechem, measure off the valley of Succoth. Verse seven, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is mine, Judah my scepter, Ephraim is my helmet, Judah is my scepter, Moab is my wash basin, upon Edom I toss my sandals, over Philistia I shout in triumph. These are all these different places and regions around ancient Israel here, where David was, where David's people were. It it sort of reminds us back, if you remember, a few weeks back when we were in the book of Joshua, and you're picking up on all these different names, and we don't immediately recognize them, right? Because we're not, maybe, like, we don't live in ancient Israel where this is going on, so these names might kind of sound sort of weird. But the point is here, he takes two groupings, two categories. He, first of all, lists off a number of different names and regions and towns of places that are part of his people and the land that God has given to his people. Shechem and Gilead and Manasseh and Ephraim and Judah. They're all cities from amongst God's people. And God God says, these these are mine, these are mine, these are mine. Even even his help of military might with the helmet is there as uh, uh, Ephraim. The scepter is royal authority. 
is displayed in Judah. This is all mine. And, and then verse eight, Moab is my wash basin. Edom is my sandal. Philistia is, I shout in triumph over them. These are three of the big surrounding enemies of David and the people of God who keep attacking and attacking and attacking on the borders. And God says, these people are mine too. They, they are like nothing to me. You know, Moab is like a, a basin that I wash my feet in. They're lowly wash basin. Edom is like sandals that I stick my feet in. Philistia, I just shout right over top of the Philistines. They are nothing. God says, I am the God of all the universe. What we see here, brothers and sisters, is so incredibly encouraging and comforting. God is giving us words to pray here. And he is teaching us here. He's saying, my precious children... I am the great and holy God of all the universe. And I welcome you to come into my presence with your pleas. I, I know it might seem like everything is a disaster right now. I know there is all this angst going on inside that feels like one thing on top of another on top of another. But friend, the amount that you are carrying might feel like it's going to make you collapse like a house of cards, but I own everything and I can lift your burdens. I am here and I am the source of all salvation. The, all of these things that are piling up on top of you, one after another after another, all these weights that feel like they're just too much and I cannot possibly carry another thing. All these oppositions and obstacles that keep coming against you, these enemies that keep coming to try and tear you down, they're, they're like the thing I wash my feet in and I just crush when I stand upon them. Come and bring your plea to me. I welcome it which leads to this final beautiful nugget of this psalm, the final stanza, which is really leads us to a question. It's this, who are you really going to turn to? As we think about this moment we find ourselves in when everything feels like it's hitting the fan and we need to step into the fray and we're wrestling with how to pray, who are we really, who are you really today going to turn to. Verse 9, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who is going to lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Give us aid against the enemy, for the help of man is worthless. With God, we shall gain the victory, and he will trample down our enemies. The prayer turns into sort of this introspection in this last stanza. The psalmist is asking himself these questions and, and we are led, you and I are led to ask ourselves these questions. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who, who's going to lead me to Edom? This is basically to say, you know, who is really going to get you through this? Like, honestly, who's actually going to help you get to the fortified city? Who's actually going to help you overcome the enemies that you are facing? Who's actually going to carry you along to victory? 
I, I envision here, these final verses are sort of like, you know that moment when you were a kid on the schoolyard and, and you're choosing the two different teams here? And, and I want you to picture yourself where there's the two teams and everybody's been picked except you. And now at this moment, it inverts, okay? Rather than the final captain having to be stuck with you, you are at that moment. Both teams are just about filled and you get to choose which one do you want to go to? Which team do you pick? Which direction do you go? Who are you and I really going to turn to? When right now, or next week, or next month, or when we come alongside a dear brother or sister who is struggling in these sort of situations and we are providing counsel and encouragement and prayer and support for them, who will we turn to? Who will we help them turn to? Verse 9, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Who is the one who's actually going to help me, help you in this battle? Who is it really going to be? Who is going to overcome these massive armies that are coming against David and the people of God? When we bring it into our context here, friends, who is it that is actually going to bring you relief from that anxiety that just feels like it will never lift? Who is the one who's going to help you overcome temptation, that just keeps grabbing at your heart and it feels like I'll never be able to overcome this struggle. Who is going to quiet the lies of the enemy chirping in your ear, telling you all these different lies of shame and, and trying to suck you back into old patterns of life? Who is going to carry you through that scare and uncertainty of what's going to happen with the latest health news? Who is the one who's going to provide for you when it's so uncertain about where's the next bill going to get paid from? Who is the one who's actually going to help? Is it not you, O oh God, you who have rejected us and no longer go out with our armies? Isn't it God who I need? Isn't it God who you need? Isn't it God who David in this moment right here really needs? That's who we need to turn to. That's who, I know there is so much angst going on right now, but who we really need? Verse 11, give us aid against the enemy for the help of man is worthless. The help of man is worthless. The efforts of other people to come alongside and change our hearts, it won't work. My own efforts to silence the devil and to, to quelch the temptation that lures us in from our sin and our flesh, my, my own might to ensure that my loved one will remain healthy and get through this, my pursuit of finally getting enough in the bank account or enough stuff so that the, the weight is lifted and we can finally just live at ease, none of it works. None of our own efforts. No man's efforts will ever. The help of man is worthless. But God, with God, verse 12, we shall gain the victory. With God, we shall gain the victory and he will trample down our enemies. This psalm concludes by leading us to the Lord for help. The Lord for his strength, to the Lord for his support, for his protection and for his grace, for his provision and his salvation and sustaining power. And it's interesting because the psalm here what we see is, is that this, is, this was a prayer given to God's people 
in the midst of them waiting for the enemy to come and attack, right? I mean, everything else was hitting the fan. It's piling up. It's the house of cards. It's about to have one more card. It's the, it's the pile that's about to be broken by the final straw on the camel's back. But they're in that midst of waiting and looking and wondering, and how do we step into this? And this is the prayer that is given to them. This is the prayer that is given to us as we step into the fray. But the heading right from the very beginning actually gives away how this whole thing is going to go, doesn't it? Let me just read. A victim of David for teaching when he fought and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. See, the prayer here is a prayer in the midst of the waiting. The prayer here is a prayer in advance of these armies coming towards them. But it also teaches us and teaches them, because it was written after the fact, that God came through. That God came through for his people. That God answered the prayer that is being prayed here, that God gave victory to David and Joab and 12,000 soldiers of these Edomites, these, these Syrians and these Mesopotamians that are coming to attack, the hooves that were thumping so loudly, the chariot dust that was coming towards them that had caused maybe the young lookout soldiers to say, they're coming, they're coming. The prayer they were to pray in that moment is the prayer that was given and was ultimately led into their victory. This is the prayer in the waiting, but the God who came through for them gave them this prayer. And the same God who came through for them is the same God who comes through for you and I. See, he was not only the God who gave David and Joab victory in the Valley of Salt, we know that that same God gave an even greater victory when he sent his own son to come into battle with the greatest of all enemies. God, on behalf of his beloved, you and I, sent his son on a rescue mission for us. He sent Jesus to come and fight against the greatest of enemies that we have, sin, Satan, death, and he overcame all of them against every single one of our great enemies, our sin and our struggle with temptation, Jesus crushed it on the cross. Satan who, who chirps in our ears and our arch enemy who is a murdering liar, Jesus utterly defeated. Death, the sting removed forever because Jesus was raised to life. And so no matter how big or dark or strong or or overwhelming the pile might be, and that next thing that feels like it's going to get dropped on top that will just be, I cannot continue on, no matter how much we might feel like we can't get through this, guess what? Jesus already has. And get this. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So right now, friends, and in the days ahead as we find ourselves in moments and days and weeks and seasons where it just feels like one thing after another after another, 
and the straw that is about to break the back, the card that is going to be the final one to bring it all crumbling down, the chair that's going to be dropped on, it's just going to be too much. When we find ourselves in those moments and needing to not only just get through it, but to step in by faith into the fray, God gives us this beautiful prayer that teaches us these beautiful words that God gives to lead us to pray as we step into the fray.